depending on who you ask, they have different names, though most people know who they are. They came from the sky in December 2023. They decimated the majority of human civilization before the new year started. For 15 years, the world was at war with an occupying force. I found myself in a government safe zone outside of Manchester, lucky that when I was 24 I wrote a novel. I say lucky because when the military conscripted ordinary citizens into their ranks, every able-bodied man and woman was given a role to play in the zone. Most were told they would be joining military forces, more than often as boots on the ground. But there was a couple of civilian pilots who were given recon missions after enough training had been given. Border patrol, scavengers, farmers, teachers, cleaners, and recyclers filled out the others. Me? Well, because I could type 100 words a minute and could create, let's be honest, propaganda for the people in the base, I lived through the war in comfort as a pseudo-court reporter. Every briefing and debriefing, every mission report, I sat in the calmer with my laptop and typed everything that was being said. My guess is they trusted me because if I leaked the information, my ass would be out on the front lines against the threat. That leads me to where we are today. When they invaded, the Earth was home to a population of over 8 billion. Now, official estimates put the Earth at a population of 800 million, but thankfully, the population of the invaders sits at an impressive zero. Or, at least we hope. I was brought to the military general's office this morning to be given the following mission. Collect the stories of survivors from around the world and bring them back for preservation, he had said. I was in shock. I hadn't left the military base in 14 years, even before the war I hadn't left England since I was six. My first destination, along with two military escort soldiers, an Airbus A400M, pilot and co-pilot, was Florida. To speak to the head of NASA, who, back in the day, were the ones who noticed the incoming object entering our solar system. I could have refused, something deep down in me really wanted to, but I accepted, seeing it as my final act of duty to the world. So, this is going to be life for probably the next year or so, flying from one place to another, talking to survivors. Do you think I'll need my passport? <laughs> anyway. I'm going to organize the following interviews into chronological order to give you all listening the best understanding of the war as it unfolded. The way I think I'll do this is just to let the people I'm interviewing tell their stories with as little prompting and guiding from myself. Do it off the cuff, so to speak. Day 1 I arrived at the Kennedy Space Center and was told the head of NASA in 2023, Daniel Mitchell, has prearranged our meeting to take place on Launch Complex 39, the launch pad used for the Apollo space flights. Mitchell is an elderly man now, in his 80s, with thin silver hair and deep wrinkles across his face. As I step onto the platform, he is sat on a mobility scooter, looking towards the horizon. When he sees me approaching, he stands with some difficulty and shakes my hand firmly. Magnificent, isn't it? This, this is where mankind took its first real step into the stars. Here... Men from the planet Earth set foot upon the moon, July 1969, after death. We came in peace for all mankind. 
Neil A. Armstrong, Michael Collins, Edwin E. Aldrin Jr., Richard Nixon, President, United States of America. That's what the plaque says on the moon right now. <laughs> we were just about to return to the moon in 2023 when we began tracking the incoming asteroid as it came past the asteroid belt. The original asteroid was about 400 kilometers in diameter, or uh, 250 miles for you Brits. That's roughly the size of England itself. We, we knew that if it hit the Earth, that it would destroy the planet. Not just life on our planet. For instance, the dinosaur killer was only 81 kilometers wide. This one was five times bigger. We faced a lot of criticism from the president. I, I remember one of our scientists pointing out that our object collision budget allows us to track 1% of the sky. And begging your pardon, sir, but it's a big-ass sky. <laughs> I'll remember that to the day I die. It wasn't until later we saw the asteroid beginning to break up. A miracle from God? A 0.001% random occurrence? Well, if there was a god, I think she died that day. We tracked the larger asteroids detaching from the main structure and predicted their impact zones. New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Denver, Los Angeles, Seattle to say the least. We should have realized that they were hostile then. The largest pieces of rock just happened to aim for mass population centers. For the next 36 hours, Earth was shook again, and again, and again, and again, and again. With impacts all around the world. When the rocks hit, they also caused an EMP, an electromagnetic pulse, that knocked out all the electronics in the area, so no one, no one knew what was happening in the impact zones. Where were you during these 36 hours? The government had already collected the VIPs and put them in old Cold War bunkers around the country. My family and myself were airlifted to one outside of... Redacted due to national security. Of course, most people didn't know about the existence of these bunkers and instead made their way to the pop-up emergency shelters scattered around the country. Uh, we were the three and a half thousand feet beneath the ground, if I'm not mistaken. We, we had uh, emergency power generators and uh, enough provisions to last us for 20 years. I hated it. There was so much open space, long corridors, big wide open rooms, uh, canteens, uh, even a goddamn swimming pool. All that space could have been used to evacuate people from D.C. Then... We felt the impact of the DC crater at 3 o'clock in the morning. And you knew that thousands of people had probably just died. We, uh, we knew the last of the asteroids should have hit ground after 36 hours, but uh, the official instruction was to stay in the bunkers for five days. Like I said, we had plenty of supplies. At the end of the five days, the guards opened the bunker doors and uh, they stepped outside. Uh, a few of the VIPs, myself included, followed them onto the surface. You could not see six feet in front of you. The black suit had almost fully blocked out the sky. But you could see the midday sun scarred orange behind it. Of course, we could not see the DC crater or the spire then. 
We were told by the guards to return underground and stay there for the next three weeks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Occupation Earth podcast. Please make sure you subscribe to be updated when the next episode releases. On the next episode, I meet with Sergeant Mark Griggs, who was boots on the ground in D.C. during the evacuations and saw the asteroid land, so you don't want to miss that. Also, Daniel Mitchell's interview doesn't end here, so if you want to know why they had to leave the bunker, you can catch that coming soon, too. Hello, and welcome to the Occupation Earth podcast, an audible history of the alien invasion of Earth between 2023 and 2039. The ruins of New York on the east coast of America look like many of the other population centers in the New World. Skyscrapers that once touched the sky now lay on the ground as piles of rubble, a painful reminder of the history of New York in the 21st century or are bombed-out, crumbling fossils of a past nearly lost. When the original asteroid came through the asteroid belt, it sent shrapnel hurtling towards the Earth, causing meteor showers leading up to the invasion itself. New York, and more specifically the Atlantic seaboard, were one of the first places hit by these incoming projectiles. It was during my research into the retaking of Manhattan I met Maria Bianchi, who was in New York at the age of 14 during the first meteor shower. Maria is now 30 years old and served in the military for 13 years after being evacuated to Vermont at the start of the invasion. We conduct our interview on Liberty Island Forward Operating Base. Oh, and if you're wondering what the Statue of Liberty looks like now, it's still standing, as if she's laughing at all those disaster movie cliches of the 90s and 2000s. I'd love to say there was a warning, some kind of siren, some kind of alert sent to everyone's phone, but there was nothing. We had driven over from Jersey for a holiday. That's me, my mom, dad, and brother. Do you want to give their names? No, I don't. I don't remember what time the media shower started, but I remember leaving a pizzeria when there was a massive explosion in the distance. All around us, people were looking around, running to the intersections to try and spot what had happened. I remember people saying it was a plane, like Bin Laden was back. Then we saw the smoke coming from the Lower East Side. The rock had crashed almost perfectly down from Chinatown to the Manhattan Bridge, tearing up buildings, the road, and igniting gas lines before hitting the water. We were stood on the edge of the island, looking at the crater. The highway was at a standstill where people stood between the cars. We watched as fire trucks and ambulances and police cars pushed up to the impact zone. I remember people coming out covered in gray ash, blood running down from the heads and from their arms. People crying, people screaming. About twenty minutes later, there was a series of booms from above. Everyone looked up, and we could see black streaks falling from the sky toward us. 
The explosion started across the city as people ran in panic. I got separated from my mom, dad, and brother in the panic. People didn't know where to go. You go inside, then you get buried. You stay outside, you get hit by an explosion. Then a rock hit the FDR, making it buckle up into the air and then turn over onto the road below. I could have only seen it for a second, but I saw the crowd starting to go pancake as FDR's road surface hit the ground below. Next thing I knew, I was in darkness. I couldn't move my arm. I had been penetrated by rebar from the FDR's guardrail from my shoulder to my hand. Not that I had much room to move into. I was told later I was pinned underneath the bridge for two days, though I drifted in and out of consciousness for most of it. I remember realizing I was lying on an elderly lady. It must have been the second day. I tried shifting and touched her face. Realized when they pulled me out she had taken the full impact of the rebar. Her body was eviscerated by the rebar. Whether she saved me on purpose or not, I don't know, but I made sure I got her ID when I was pulled out by Meg. At this point, Maria shows me the elderly lady's driver's license. Helen Bradham, born May 23, 1950. Now 16 years old, the driver's license is dirtied, bent, and burnt on the edges. As Maria had clearly kept it with her at all times. Never found anyone from my family. Never saw my family after that day, so I assume they died. They'll probably be on the memorial wall they're planning to put up in D.C., not that I'll visit it. You seem resentful of your family. Do you think there was something they could have done to keep you together? Hell no, I'm not resentful. The world changed that day. I became someone else. I started a new family with the people who pulled me out. Private John Buckley found me. He and Specialist Simon Nash lifted the rubble off me. But I was still pinned by the FDR rebar. Medic Megan Clark held my hands while Captain Henrietta Russo cut through the rebar and freed my arm at the site before I was airlifted to the hospital. I remember seeing the triage center set up in the unimpacted parts of the city, people holding up signs asking for specific blood types, ordinary people handing out water, even restaurants handing out food for free. Some people were filming the emergency workers going in out of the impact zones, such as New York. Because of my age and chances of survival, I was prioritized at the hospital and went into surgery straight away. She points on her left arm, showing a series of scars and tears where the rebar penetrated. That's all that's left of it now. I had been given some morphine in the helicopter, so I was starting to drift off, but I can remember going through the crowds outside. More people screaming, people crying, angry people who demanded the doctors prioritize themselves or another family member. The military took control fairly quickly after I got there. I heard it started when a doctor was taken hostage at gunpoint and led away from the hospital to help deliver a baby in the back of a lorry. As if people hadn't been given birth for thousands of years in the past. Stupid. Though I do wonder if that baby survived the next fifteen years. Probably not. Flash forward a couple of years, and when I turned sixteen I joined the military. We were well into the invasion at this point. The safe zone of Vermont didn't have easy access to the records, so I told them I was eighteen. Not like it matters now. We operated in fire teams of seven. Captain Ryan Hemsworth, massive Giants fan. Sergeant Cat Sheridan, with the best bag bull this side of the Atlantic. Specialist Dwight Ertz, 
mouth like a sailor. <laughs> Sniper Mara Perez, quiet type. Medic Oliver Jackson, the wannabe comedian. Private Chadwick Morgan, said he was 18, but he looked younger than me. Private Andre Android Freud, was supposed to be joined the NFL the week before the world turned to shit. We also lost Molly Angela, Mark Michael, Elliot Bennetton, Neville Donovan, Ada Stroman, Rosanna John, and Michael Brannon during the 13 years we were a team. Did you get those names? They deserve to be remembered, too. Make sure you include them in the interview, yeah? I found Specialist Simon Nash, now Captain Simon Nash, during the retaking of Manhattan last year. We fought some of the Alphas in Central Park. I don't think you recognize me. Alphas, the U.S. name given to the six-legged, four-armed, predatory alien invaders. Don't know what happened to the others. Have you met any of them? Not yet, sorry. The following is President Denzel Channing's speech, given on July 3rd, 2023, the 47th U.S. President, addressing the meteor shower that took place two days earlier. At this point, it is safe to assume he and the other world leaders knew about the larger asteroid, but chose not to divulge the information to the public due to fear of civil unrest or because they were still looking for a solution. Uh, my fellow Americans, uh, on July 1st, we had had a national tragedy. Uh, that had echoed around the world. Uh, the, t the catastrophe that stretches across our great nation has left America wounded and crippled, uh, but we will overcome. Uh, I'd spoken to the Vice President, uh, to the head of the CIA, to the Director of NASA. Uh, we can assure you that for now the worst is over. Uh, today I had been informed of miraculous stories of people, uh, ordinary people, helping and aiding in the rescue efforts from Maine to Florida, uh, people donating blood in field hospitals set up in streets. Uh, people constructing stretchers to aid in the retrieval of the injured. Uh, American pickup trucks and cranes being used uh, to pull apart rubble to help dig for survivors. Uh, people helping people. Uh, that is what makes our country great. Uh, that is what makes our country united. Uh, that is what we will use to rebuild our country. Uh, I have ordered the return of American forces on leave for the 4th of July to return to active duty to assist in the retrieval and rescue of citizens trapped or in the need of assistance. If you feel unsafe in your homes, I ask that you please leave the cities in a calm and orderly fashion. I and the Treasury are compensating hotels that open their doors to people who have lost their homes for the foreseeable future. I ask that you be patient with the financial paperwork. This is an unprecedented event, and we're chasing to catch up with it. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Occupation Earth podcast. Please make sure you subscribe to be updated when the next episode releases. On the next episode, I speak to a man going by the name Alexis Dressler, who operated for the German Federal Intelligence Service to record his views on the suspected assassination of European politicians who planned to reveal the existence of the asteroid before July 20th, 2023.
Hello, and welcome to the Occupation Earth podcast, an audible history of the alien invasion of Earth between 2023 and 2039. During my travels through Europe, I was approached by a bald white man wearing a black trench coat and suit. He approached me in a cafe on the outskirts of Berlin, seemingly knowing already who I was and why I was traveling. My military escorts, both wielding Grau 556 assault rifles, both wielding Grau 5.56 assault rifles, made themselves known and apparent as he nodded while dropping a napkin on my table. The napkin read, My name is Alexis Dressler. I know you British are trying to preserve the history of this war. Other countries are too. I have information from the weeks leading up to the initial impact of the asteroid that my government will try to hide. I wish to give them to you. Please meet me at 52.5839-70-13.22-69-50. Your guards must stay at the entrance. You will be in their view, but I will be out of theirs. Also, tell the guard on the left his safety is still on. Alexis. These coordinates took me to Friedhof Heiligensee. I apologize if I mispronounce that, but like I said, I haven't left England since I was six. It was a graveyard where many politicians, opera singers, writers, and actors are buried. It also looks back onto some woods, so I assume Alexis chose this place in case he needed to make a quick getaway. Arriving the same day, I walked into the graveyard and met Alexis where he said he would be. He stood beside a mausoleum. I ask if he is okay with me recording the interview, to which he nods. I was a member of the German Federal Intelligence Agency before the asteroid was made public. I operated for many years across EU, ME and SA. Many missions, including key individual extraction, surveillance, non-extradition interrogation, human trafficking, torture and wet work. When the NA Atlantic seaboard was hit, news of the primary projectile was labeled top secret by the world superpowers. At the head of that list, Russia, the US, China, the EU, and then the UK. No offense. But with everything came opposition, people who wanted to tell the public before the 20th of June. Could you imagine the panic, the looting, the basic unraveling of the world as we know it? And weeks before the asteroid was supposed to end it all. We want to keep everyone working like everything is okay until that piece of rock enters the atmosphere. Let them worry about next week's football match, about their wedding next week, about the next Marvel superhero movie. I mean, Brian Larson, what a dish. But still, politicians like Bastian Königsmann wanted us to reveal the impeding doom to the world to give people a chance to survive. Bastian Königsmann was the Federal Minister of Defense in Germany 2023. Officially, he died in a car accident in 2023 on July 5th at 9 o'clock, local time in Berlin. Head for the caves, head out to sea, get the billionaires to build a space shuttle to ferry people to bases on the moon or Mars. But when Bastian threatened to go public, the Prime Minister activated me. At this time, I didn't know why this man needed to die. However, it was not a privilege of my position to ask questions. I later learned of many other prominent politicians around the world being involved in mysterious accidents. Many were caught in later meteor showers after being out of the public eye for a few days. Königsmann was crossing the spree over 96A when his driver suffered a heart attack, very sad, and drove off the bridge into the river. It would later be discovered that the locks on his armored car were faulty and couldn't be opened from the inside while the car was in motion. 
I was instructed to carry out two more assassinations in the next few weeks. I believe at that point the flow of information ceased, however, on my second journey I came across the files of Chancellor Julia Haas. Julia Haas was the German Chancellor in 2023 and officially died in a hotel explosion on July 18, 2023. She had been close with Königsmann and the Prime Minister labeled her a threat. In her hotel room, after choking her out and snapping her neck, I found her laptop open on her bed. The name of the incoming projectile, its due date, and global impact was all there waiting to be leaked to the press. What is wrong? Did I make you uncomfortable talking about us? She died quickly. No suffering. No, it's fine. Continue, please. I saved the information to my iron key and let the room fill with gas. I set the microwave with a bowl of beans and a spoon before leaving the hotel. When I returned to the BND headquarters, I presented the information to my handler. I didn't say anything about the information, simply stating I cloned her laptop for Intel and then left Berlin. I traveled under alias to Denmark, then Norway, then into Russia, changing alias each time. You believe what you saw on the laptop? Each of these officials had done something that warranted their deaths. Politicians across the world were dying. Anyone could see something big was about to go down, most thought it would be World War III, I guess in the way it was. When the asteroid Blitzkrieg began on July 21st, I was in a hut near the Kara Sea. I had enough money and enough bank accounts to get anywhere in a civilized world, and enough skills to get anywhere in an uncivilized one. When I returned to Berlin five years later, I visited the BND headquarters again, just to see what had survived. I had been hiding, carrying out personal mercenary work in Sweden and Denmark. Hunting the predators, clearing the Lungezüchters for favors, you see? Predator. The European name of the six-legged, four-armed predatory alien invaders. Lungezüchters. The German name of the parasitic spores that infect human lungs and cause internal bleeding and eventual eruption of Lungezüchter spore plants. I broke into the building from the roof and looked around. It was a little damaged from the Berlin spire, but the building stood tall and secure for all that time aside from a collapsed wall on the 14th floor. Something you need to know about government intelligence buildings is they always have a failsafe in case the building is taken over, or someone in power decides they do not need them anymore. I found skeletons on the ground. One had bullets inside of it, but others were lying on the ground as if they had simply laid down to sleep in the office. I looked around, eventually making my way into the office of the head of the BND, and realized what had happened. My iron key was on the desk, his phone off the hook at his side, and a gun in his hand. There was a dead body by the door with a blood mark scarred into the wall outside. The head of the BND learned about the incoming projectile before the 18th, brought it to the attention of the Prime Minister, Kerstin Schumacher, who ordered the silence of the two men in the office. Failing to kill the second, or being killed by the second, Schumacher triggered the failsafe and flooded the building with poisonous gas. Most likely sarin. The building sealed and everyone inside, and they silently slipped into comas and died. The death of 1700 people to protect the lie that would have only killed them later. I have not found the Prime Minister yet. I do not know if she is still in power or if she is even still alive. But if I do not find her, I want a murder to go on record. You will ensure this. Yes, when you leave today, know that I am still hunting her. And if she has any honor and you see her before I do, tell her I am looking for her and she should face death with honor. 
I nodded, and Alexis instructed me to walk back towards my guards with my back to him. I did not risk turning back to look at him, and we left the graveyard, heading back towards Berlin. While I know that Kristen Schumacher is not in charge of Germany at the present in 2038, I do not know if she is alive or dead. I also was unable to validate the claims made by Alexis about the B&D building, as it was bombed, along with most of central Berlin in 2034. I can also not confirm if Alexis Dressler was the man's real name, as he openly admitted to using aliases in the past. It is also possible that this man was just trying to hand over his own personal delusions or reimagined history to have his name left in the history books. I've included the story regardless, and leave it up to you to decide how you feel about it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Occupation Earth podcast. Please make sure you subscribe to be updated when the next episode releases. On the next episode, I speak to Jun Chung, who successfully landed a commercial plane in Beijing during a meteor shower the day before the whole world learnt of the incoming asteroid. Hello, and welcome to the Occupation Earth Podcast, an audible history of the alien invasion of Earth between 2023 and 2039, recorded August 7th, 2039. I met pilot Jun Chung on the aircraft carrier Shandong, one of the three Chinese aircraft carriers in operation in the world. It is summer now in China, late September, and the operation of bringing Chinese citizens back into the country has begun. The Chinese military moved across Indonesia and the Philippines to acquire land in the first two years of the war to secure the safety of their citizens in less populated areas. Before this happened, however, on July 19th, Beijing joined the fraternity of cities caught up in the asteroid shrapnel. My name is Jun Chung. I was a co-pilot for Chinese airlines before the war, and now I operate as a search and rescue in the central government. We were coming into our approach vector, flying from Mexico City to Beijing, approaching from the north. The plane was a Boeing 747. We had 137 passengers on board, two air marshals, and seven crew members. We adjusted airspeed as to air traffic control specifications when we started to hear a series of loud explosions above us. At first, we thought it was strange. The skies were cloudy, but we didn't expect any thunder. About a mile ahead of us, the pilot, Hung Po, spotted an orange streak hurtled towards the ground, leaving behind a long plume of smoke in the night sky. We banked to the left to avoid the plume and informed ATC. I remember stating that we thought it could be another meteor shower, like the one in New York. But when we got no reply, we were forced to make our own decisions in the air. We would later learn that the tower was hit by one of those meteors directly and many planes in the sky were now flying blind. Were the passengers made aware? We did not tell them about the meteors. We were too busy making plans and weighing the options. I think they would have awoken when we made our initial banking maneuver and then looked out the windows. 
Hung Po decided that it was safer to be struck on the ground than knocked out of the air by one of the rocks, so we adjusted back on course. Of course, we could have been intercepted by a plane trying to also land, but we elected to take our chances. Why not fly out of the meteor shower? We didn't know the expanse of the shower. It could have been isolated here or stretched from one side of the planet to the other. When air traffic control went dead, we could no longer rely on others to make our decisions. A minute later more, and more explosions were heard above the plane. We spotted a series of orange fireballs falling in front of us and were forced to bank left and right through their smoke trails. When one of our wings clipped through the trail, the engine began to choke and splutter. When Hung looked down to check that the engine was still operational, a meteor passed directly in front of us, forcing me to bank sharply to the left. But I was too late, and the right side of the plane flew through the meteor's tail. In a second, half of the glass shattered with stones that killed Hung in his seat, blood spewing from his eyes where the stones had pierced his body. I was now in control of a 145 lives, and I had already lost one. <clears throat> we had already descended to twelve and a half thousand feet. Protocol was to dictate I drop to ten thousand. I took a second to look at all the controls and could see that engines three and four were failing, with engine one choking on the smoke and stones also. When I landed, I saw the wing shredded with holes from the meteor's tail. It was a miracle that it stayed attached even. I dropped us to 5,000 feet. We were way short of Beijing International Airport, but at this height, I thought I would have more time to react to falling meteors. Checking our telemetry, scanning the horizon, I spotted the city's skyline ahead of us when there was suddenly a lot of shaking in the joystick. I fought to keep our current trajectory when all of a sudden, the plane jolted the way I was pulling the joystick. Engine 3 had fallen off the wing. Not to worry. I was still flying half a plane. I heard the passengers scream behind me when this happened. Adjusting to compensate was the easy part. I switched engine 2 off to even out the workload on either wings. However, I still needed to dodge incoming projectiles. You could see the fires beginning to spread across Beijing. A truly terrifying sight, as I could see one skyscraper with a hole burnt right through it. It was then I looked at Hung for a long second. Putting fear behind me, I knew I had to land this plane. The explosions above us had stopped at this point. However, as many will point out, that doesn't mean the plane was safe. I adjusted our approach again as we passed over a small hill lining up exactly as I would a normal flight and began to descend. This is when there was a final loud bang above us. I looked up through the cockpit when a meteor struck the ground to our right. That was when I saw the wreckage of Transworld Airways Flight 180 hurtling towards the ground. Well, not exactly. Towards us. The plane was a fireball of jet fuels and combustibles that was spinning as it fell, making it next to impossible to predict. I was forced to bank our nose upwards and turn to the right as it came crashing down in front of us. It was such a sharp maneuver that it caused the plane to fly at a 90-degree angle for almost 10 seconds. Screaming erupted from behind me once again as I fought gravity to keep the plane airborne. We rapidly dropped altitude as the cockpit filled with alarms and sirens. For a second, I thought about going with the bank and flipping the plane 270 degrees. 
However, I think in hindsight, that would have killed us. The whole plane began to groan as I managed to get her back under control. The tip of the right wing clipped the edge of the runway as the plane finally fell back onto a horizontal position. I crashed into the swell of my seat, pulled out the landing gear, and dropped the airplane speed dropping us onto the tarmac. The combined weight and speed of the plane buckled the landing gear, and we started spreading a shower of sparks across the runway. It was then the right wing finally dropped off the fuselage, and we came to a screeching, twisted stop at the other end of the runway. My heart in my mouth, I sat in the cockpit, still gripping the joysticks. I felt like I took my first breath in minutes. I must have sat there for at least a few minutes, because when I looked out the window, I saw the passengers on the runway having already opened the emergency doors and evacuated the plane. The emergency services were already busy all across the north of China, so I followed the passengers out onto the runway. When I dropped down the emergency slide, I was greeted by our cabin crew, who asked for Hung. But I told them he didn't make it. Some of the passengers came over to shake my hand and thank me for landing the plane. As the passengers made their way inside the airport, I walked back down the runway and fetched this. He shows me a piece of a white plane wing, pierced with a string, wrapped around his neck. I keep this to remind me of what I'm capable of. Call it a good luck charm, or a reminder. Following the Northern China meteor shower, the leaders of the world came together and organized the briefings that would be done in synchronicity on July 20th, 1830 GMT. These briefings would be pushed back by an hour when the asteroid broke up as David Mitchell, head of NASA, told us in Episode 1, leaving the planet on edge for an hour awaiting the news. The following is British Prime Minister Helen Willis's speech given to the British populations at 1913 GMT. I apologize for the lateness of the hour. As you can imagine, some things just don't always go to plan. I come before you tonight as a citizen of humanity. I say this because the news that I was given following the incident on America's Atlantic seaboard unites us in a way that the world has scarcely been in the past. On the 18th of June, a foreign object to our solar system, an asteroid, came through the asteroid belt between Jupiter and Mars, sending shrapnel towards our planet. This asteroid, we thought, was on a collision course with the Earth. However, I have just been reliably informed that the asteroid appears to be breaking up as it passed by our moon. While I speak to you now, briefings are going out around the Earth about the possible fallout sites of the falling rocks. We are currently tracking two large asteroids that will impact south of London in England, near Falkirk in Scotland, and some smaller rocks, that we expect to spread across the United Kingdom over the next 36 hours. My scientists tell me that the rocks will be pulled down into our gravity all across the world over the next 36 hours, and so I am ordering an evacuation of London, effective immediately. These asteroids will deal tremendous damage where they land. The damage will be limited and easy to survive if you are outside of the impact zones. Civilians should do their best to calmly leave the city and head west or north away from the city. 
we have been told that we can expect the London asteroid to impact after midnight. I am bringing in the military to London and declaring martial law to ensure a safe and effective evacuation in the next five hours. Those with transport should seek to leave London by car. However, if you are unable to do so, please approach military personnel who will point you in the direction of the nearest evacuation site. I apologise for the lateness of this warning. However, we need to look at this as an opportunity to re-evaluate and reassess our place in the world and our relationship to one another as a species. My original speech, to be given at half-past six, was one of the end of the world. Citing the Bible passage that calls this day Armageddon, Judgment Day. However, by an act of God, or the hand dealt by random chance, we have been given a second chance. We will rebuild the United Kingdom. After this day, this darkest day in our nation's history, but much like a phoenix rises from the ashes, so will we. Now, I apologise, but I will not be taking any questions now, as I need to help plan the evacuation across London and Falkirk in the coming hours. And the following is the audio heard on her microphone, back behind the doors of 10 Downing Street, as she spoke after giving her speech. Has Her Majesty been airlifted yet? We need to get them to... As of 2040, we now know the royal family were evacuated to the royal bunker in Wales as per the nuclear war warnings. However, at the time, the rumor was that they, and other VIPs in Britain, were launched into space to the Branson Space Center. However, that was revealed later to not be the case. I personally couldn't imagine Liz surviving space travel, but that's me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Occupation Earth podcast. Please make sure you subscribe to be updated when the next episode releases. On the next episode, we recount the world briefings and evacuation of the world's mass population centers. Welcome to the Occupation Earth podcast, an audible history of the alien invasion of Earth between 2023 and 2039, recorded December 23rd, 2039. I am currently back in England for Christmas. My tour of North America took me from August to December, and I plan to return to South America in the new year before coming back across Europe to Asia and then Australia. We are currently in Cornwall, the southwest corner of England, in Bodmin Military Base. The refugees have set up tents around a massive bonfire in the center of the base. While not a typical English Christmas, the feeling around the camp is one of togetherness and relief, as this is the first Christmas we can openly celebrate without fear of threat. My first interview is with RAF pilot Carl McKinnon. We meet by the Christmas tree in the air traffic control tower overlooking the runway and refuge center. 
I was about 35 when we found out what was going to happen. I had about 6,000 hours of flight time, was captain of a 737 MAX. But we were calling the lounge to see the Prime Minister's address. Can't remember it being on the emergency broadcast system. <laughs> you remember that, right? Well, luckily, I was an Heathrow when it all started to go down. I can remember the old bint saying, We are lucky that the structure is broken up as it passed the moon. We know the piece of rock heading towards England will just hit southeast of London. <laughs> with another piece of rock impact in Glasgow shortly after. <laughs> Even the apocalypse knows to come to England first, then Scotland, then Ireland. Honestly, I'm surprised we even got a mention. Surprised we didn't need a message from our first minister, because London was more fixed on themselves yet again. Wasn't long after things started turning to shite. He pulls a cigarette from his jacket pocket and lights up. He offers me one, but I refuse. As soon as the motorways filled up with cars, people began looking for other ways out. What made it worse was the goddamn phone lines being overwhelmed, so you didn't know where you were going or what were you do when you got there. When the motorways stopped moving, people flooded into the airports looking to buy their way out. I remember my mate, John Lagina. He had his family in the airport with him when the briefing came on TV. The flash, they were loading onto a Cessna Skyline. Tinky little play with four seats. One for him, one for his wife, one for his daughter, and the last one for their dog. Basser was ahead of the thought train. Should have gone with him, really. In a few hours, the entire airport was full of people. Everyone trying to bar their way onto a plane as if the airlines had a plan. I can remember watching this businessman full suit with his hair slicked back, pummeling this woman in the face with his briefcase because she pushed in front of me in the line. Fucking knobhead. And people were just clamoring to get by. And his case fell open and money came spewing out onto the floor. Well, you can imagine what happened next. Money was still worth something. Of course. Back then we were told it'd be a rough 36 hours, then we'd return to normal life. When the military showed up to control. God, I reckon I must have seen at least 15 people killed. Some wannabe gangster pulled a 9mm on one of the army officers, telling him, Bring down the pilot now, fucking moron. In a second, they had about six MP5s firing at him. Dead before he even hit the ground. The military maintained control for about four hours before people started to get desperate. Every time we flew back from Cornwall, more and more people pushed their way onto the plane. The 747 has between... 138 to 204 seats. Can't remember specifically how many our bird had, but we went back four times. Takes about an hour to fly from Heathrow to Cornwall, so we could do about six trips without refueling. But we ran out of time. We were in Heathrow when the 30 minutes to go alarm started ringing out. 
We were on the northern runway when it all started. Must have been hundreds. Probably thousands still inside the terminals because when the alarms started, people started pouring out on the runways running towards the planes. The ATC tower went day shortly after. I guess they caught it a day and started evacuating themselves too. Probably had a plane ready for them hidden somewhere. We watched as people ran up to the planes as they tried to get themselves into takeoff position. And watched as some woman, clutching a kid, stood in front of a massive jet and refused to move. The plane just kept rolling forward. We had already filled our seats. A few military guards even snuck onto the plane before the doors closed. Not that I blame them. As the crowd approached, you could hear the passengers urging us to take off. To leave everyone behind to escape the incoming disaster. And I don't mean the asteroid. If the crowd of people surrounded us, then there was less chance of a successful takeoff. We watched as the plane at us took off, keeping an eye on the incoming crowds. The 777 behind us. There was people climbing up the landing gear into the planes. People lifting others onto the wings who then banged on the doors demanding to be let in. I was done waiting. We started take off and flew out of there, leaving the people behind. With five flights, 136 to 208 seats, plus standing passengers, I reckon we pulled 600 to 1,200 people out of London. There was probably more than that on the runway when we took off. We didn't hear from that 777 again, so... Yeah. Fuck, man. He puts out the butt of his cigarette on his wrist and lights another. When we landed in Cornwall, the passengers were taken to the emergency shelters to set up in the farmlands over there. We stayed there for the next few weeks until reports of aliens started coming in. Later that night, I'm approached on my bench by Lucy Haywood, aged 22, who worked in the base as a scavenger for the last six years after graduating what passed for school here. She's remarkably skinny and carries scars on her arms and legs, presumably from crawling through the ruins looking for salvage. I was seven when all of the world changed. I remember watching the Prime Minister on TV after school with my mum and dad. They were very upset. Um, they said we had to pack our bags and leave the city. Do you remember what city? London City. My dad was a judge and mum was a doctor. When we reached the emergency centre in the countryside, mum was taken away, told she needed to work in the field hospital. My dad wasn't happy we'd be separated and got angry. What can you tell me about the flight out of London? I remember we had to leave with one bag each. Uh, the army men at the airport said, one bag each, leave everything else. I brought some pictures from school, pictures of my friends and Mrs. Redfield, but I lost them a long time ago. And some other kiddie stuff that was maybe important then, but not anymore. It was very busy. I'm good at sneaking through small places, but it was very crowded on the plane. I remember people crying and pushing, people arguing over seats. Someone was saying that old people shouldn't be on the plane when there was children outside. Very rude, but kind of right. It was my first time on a plane, and my ears hurt. My dad taught me to pinch my nose and blow hard to pop them. I didn't like it. I'm glad I didn't get to fly again. What happened when you landed in the base? 
like I said, my mum was taken to work in the hospital. Um, me and dad were taken to be registered in the field over there. We gave our names. Daddy was still mad that mum had been taken away. They gave us a wristband with a barcode on it and a tent number on it. Mum came back in the morning and she was very tired. There were a lot of injured people leaving the cities, car accidents and stuff. We slept in the field in a big tent. There was about 30 people in our tent. Um, I remember speaking to a boy with dark skin. His name was Brian. Uh, he'd come from Kent, which is below London. He had some cool games on his phone that we played together at night. At this point, I am joined by Lucy's mother, Charlie, who sits down with us next to the fire. My background was in vascular surgery, but obviously any kind of medical background would mean I was useful in the field hospital when we landed. There was a few car crashes along the motorways as people made their way to the base, so the military wanted us to do all we could to help so as to not overwhelm the hospitals. My husband, Ryan, wasn't very happy when they pulled me away from him and Lucy. However, after the initial 36 hours ended and we realized what was really going on, we were moved to the more secure part of the base. As a family, I mean. So it worked out well in the long run for us. Yeah, but then I lost touch with Ryan. I'm sorry, sweetheart. When the real war began, we first saw soldiers coming back with wounds that just didn't make sense for rescue operations. Rumors started then we had our first interaction with one of them. Damn soldier. A boy, no older than seventeen, had got a harpy vine wrapped on his arm. Harpy vine. The European name for the creeping vines that coil around living things and take control of their bodies, feeding on their blood and warmth to stay alive. We managed to get it off him. Cost two other men to do it. That's why I hated sending our Lucy into the cities as a scav. Scav. Short for scavenger. I used to tell her before every mission. I'd tell her, you make sure you come back to me. Each time. You hear me, Lucy Haywood? You see something dangerous, you run. Don't be a hero. She did. She didn't need to worry, though. We mostly scavenged in the clear parts of the cities after the military went through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Occupation Earth podcast. Please make sure you subscribe to be updated when the next episode releases. On the next episode, I speak to more evacuees around the world, and the world slowly begins to realize it is at war. Welcome to the Occupation Earth podcast, an audible history of the alien invasion of Earth between 2023 and 2039. Recorded 28th of August, 2039. Following my interview recording with David Mitchell, the head of NASA in 2023, I met with Seth Barachel, who worked for NASA as an aerospace engineer project manager 
and was involved in the briefing of the world leaders both before the incoming asteroid broke up and the hours after. After the North Atlantic seaboard impacts, we were tasked with finding out if the worst was over or if it was yet to come. At the time, NASA worked independently from the other world powers. When we found the projectile, President Channing insisted that we shared information with China, Russia, India, and Japan in order to formulate a response. And some of these ideas, I mean, we asked for anything and everything. Fire all the world's nukes at it. Detonate nukes in front of it or to the side of it to deflect it. Land a canopy of solar sails to pilot it away. Use the private sector to build a moon base in three weeks. Eden Orbs nanobots send Bruce Willis into space with a drill and a nuke. And the debate went on. The problem with launching nukes to stop asteroids is that it takes years of preparation. You think you can just click on a radar and launch a bomb and boom? You've done it, but that's not how it works. If anything, it would take about five years of prep to successfully divert an asteroid's path. The asteroid was moving at 542,000 miles an hour, 542,222 miles an hour to be precise. You think anything man-made can stop that? Well, something not man-made slowed it down as it approached the Earth. The president and the other world leaders prioritized this information top secret. We still have 19 days to the end of the world. Some people stayed at home, some left, some committed suicide. You should find some of the stories about the suicide cults. I think there was one in Tennessee reported before the world went dark. Anyway, I remember the mood in the room dropping when we calculated that the asteroid, if it impacted, would kill the entire planet. You're talking about 10 to the 18th power megatons of TNT, melting the planet with a heat impact, probably knocking the Earth off its axis, probably impacting the length of an Earth day too. When I got home that night, God, I'll tell you, me and my girlfriend had the best sex we ever had. I, uh, what happened when you noticed the asteroid slowing? It was spotted at first by the Hubble telescope. They were calculating the impact zone, I think, but every time they reran the numbers through the supercomputer, kept giving them different numbers. The team presented me with the numbers on July 20th, and I burst into Daniel Mitchell's office. He was the head of NASA back then, interrupted the meeting he was in with the president. You need to look at these numbers. You need to look at these numbers, I remember saying to him. The speed had dropped by 22,500 miles in the first hour, then 44,500 miles an hour in the second hour. We tracked it dropping 88,500 miles an hour in the third hour. Every hour it doubled in decremental speed. Then, when the asteroid passed the moon, it began to fracture and split apart. At about 9.30 in the morning. 16.30 GMT. Half an hour before the world briefings were supposed to begin. We were put on an emergency meeting with the world's leaders and quickly had to explain, verify, and get verified our findings. That led to the delay in briefings around the world. I mean, at the time we were celebrating. People thought it was a sign from God or, you know, a random fluke of quantum mechanics. We were honestly so happy to plan evacuations, looking back on it. It was bizarre. 
A few weeks after this interview with Seth Barachel, I traveled to Jackson, Tennessee, to research one of the suicide cults that cropped up literally overnight on July 20th, 2023. While not exclusive to America by any stretch, I have already planned trips in Australia and Africa to visit cult sites. This was most publicized in 2023. While I was walking around the site, now an abandoned, burnt-out mansion with two acres of land in the front and back, I was approached by Sergeant Miles Garcia, who was a police sergeant in 2023, and tried, with others, to stop the Tennessee EOW party. Tennessee. End of the world party. Tennessee EOW party. Could they be any less original with their name? You could hear the music about two miles out. Fokkers letting off fireworks could be heard ten miles out. These kids had everything. Spotlight, fireworks, outdoor speakers, metric tone of alcohol. You know they had a damn sign at their front gate on the road that said, and I quote, There's no escaping this. So, go down like a legend. Or something to that effect. We had been told by the governor to evac the city. We were too close to Memphis and could get out up in the fallout when the rock hit. So, I'm the unlucky guy who drive past them first. You can imagine one cop walking up to a group of about 3,000 drunk college kids? I'd have more luck trying to hurt 300 cats across the country. Realize whose house it was when I reached the front door? You an NFL fan? Sorry, English, so not exactly. Well, this particular house belonged to Super Bowl MVP quarterback Deshaun Lee of the Tennessee Titans. Kid was about 24, won the Super Bowl back in February and made a boatload of cash doing so... Must be invited all his friend over to watch the world burn because these kids were going at it. Hard. All across the courtyard by the pool there were cans and bottles of beer and spirits. People smoking weed and probably taking some harder stuff too. When I found Lee, I explained I was a police officer. The governor had ordered an evacuation. And... We needed to get his guest to an evacuation point as soon as possible. That he did not like. He kept shouting stuff about being MVP and how he was untouchable. This guy didn't have a clue what planet he was on at this point, if you ask me. Why couldn't you just leave them? Let them make their own choices? Because I was a cop. It was my job. I spent a goddamn hour walking from guest to guest trying to convince one person, just one, that they should maybe leave. A few did, when backup arrived. Simply having numbers helped big time. Some of them did, but for everyone we convinced to leave, about five more joined in. Our orders were to leave at half past midnight. It gave us an hour before the Tennessee asteroid was supposed to hit so we could reach a safe distance. We made a call. I have got aggressed this was the right decision. We commanded the biggest vehicles we could find. 
vans, buses, lorries, and began abducting people from the party. We knocked out some, dragged others kicking and screaming. There was a little resistance from other party members, but most were too wasted to really notice. My, uh, one of the officers I work with shot some frat college kid who tried to jump on him to wrestle back a woman with dreadlocks. We zip-tied them in the back of the vehicles, strapping them to the seats, railings, hand supports, while they screamed, swore, spat at us. One boy, he starts screaming about his medication. We, uh... We assume he meant weed, so we ignored him. He died on that way out of Jackson. Turned out he was talking about his diabetes medicine or something. Things got really bad when MVP came out with a shotgun demanding that his people should be able to choose who they died. He riled up the crown, screaming about a police state, how we were taking people's freedoms. Honestly? He might have been right, but is it stopping someone from committing suicide a crime? I don't know. We saved about 80 people from that party. Only God can judge us for what we did. MVP was shot after he fired a shell up into the air. I didn't do it. Then the party went mad, screaming, throwing bottles, bricks, anything that wasn't nailed down honestly. We had to get out of there pretty fast. We drove into the countryside in a convoy and joined up with the relief shelters the military were setting up. We still had the internet at this point, so we could see on Twitter what was going down at the party. Some bastards live-streamed the party. Film us killing MVP. Film us leaving Jackson behind. Fifteen minutes after we left, someone started a fire. The mansion went up as the party continued around the grounds. We saw the same person who streamed the death of MVP film a rock hit the ground about half a mile away from the mansion. You wanna see the impact zone? He leads me through the mansion grounds towards the smaller rock impact zone. The original rock is long gone, however, the impact crater, measuring 400 meters across, is still visible. The trees surrounding the area are long dead and knocked down, with smaller trees growing in their place. Whoever was streaming the party caught the asteroid as it hit the ground in the distance. They dropped the phone on impact because the sound of the crash was so loud. You could see what glass was left on the mansion shutter and rained down on people as they dropped to the ground. Then came the mist from the asteroid. You know that atmosphere conversion thing they did? People were shocking on it. Humans can't breathe that stuff. We sat, nearly a hundred miles away, watching a party of five thousand people we couldn't save, choke to death. I am currently in Banat, Romania. While most people have heard of Transylvania thanks to the Legends of Dracula, many would fail to be able to point at it on a map. Well, we are currently only 90 miles west of Transylvania, which is in central Romania. I am currently in a horse-drawn carriage 
of Diana Albescu in what can only be described as a movable commune. Diana is part of a community of 2,000 who become nomads of Romania, moving from place to place in order to survive. The following is our interview, recorded 6th of June, 2039. The day the impact happened wasn't a day, but a night. I was 13 at the time, when my parents came into my bedroom holding my baby brother. We lived in Deva, a city in Transylvania, only 150 kilometers from where we are now. My parents told me that we are evacuating, and I should grab as many stuff as I could to take with me. We left the city in my dad's 4 by 4 The roads were very busy as people tried to get out, but my dad was a hunter, so he knew his way through the country. I remember seeing abandoned cars at the side of the road, just pushed to the side. I don't know if they were broken or the owners had just decided it would be faster to walk. Everyone seemed to be living in whatever they could find, lots of cars, tractors, mopeds, bicycles. I remember at some point, my mom and dad told me to cover my eyes as we pulled forwards. They never told me why. I guess some people had either crashed or turned violent. I know sex became a commodity for the desperate when things went dark, but I don't know about back then. My dad knew about a small country road down the highway. It led into the woods and then into the countryside. When the traffic stopped, we were able to drive off to the side of the road and pull ahead. A few people tired to follow us in city cars, old Mercedes, Alfa Romeos, cars not suited to the off-roading my dad's car could do. There was a few times when these cars got stuck in the mud or on a tree root or in water. We stopped to help pull them out. People would offer my dad money and other gifts to say thank you, but he said no. He said he did it because it was the right thing to do. When the Deva Spire hit, we were out of the impact zone, but not away enough for the EMP blast. You can imagine, my car, my phone, my laptop, all dying at the same time at two in the morning in the middle of the woods. We had torches in the back, but they died also. The adults behind, since my dad helped rescue them, looked to us for advice. He ordered to collect some wood to build a fire, to make torches, so we were safer in the cars. We pushed the cars together to make a circle, so we could have the fire in the middle, so we could stay warm. When we woke up, we found that we were near a farm that one of the men done some work at before. The camp split. I went with my dad and some other men to the ranch, while the children and others stayed behind. The ranch had lots of cows and horses, chickens, too, and a couple of goats, but no people. They must have left when the order to evacuate came to us. We did a quick investigation to the building. I went to the stables to check on the horses, to make sure no one was around. Even in the early days of the apocalypse, a gang of men invading your home and looking around is not a good thing to catch doing. <laughs> I remember meeting my horse. He was only a pony then, Tunet. In English, I believe this to be Thunder. He was maybe six months old when I found him. He is now 16, and we've been inseparable ever since. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Occupation Earth podcast. Please make sure you subscribe to be updated when the next episode releases. On the next episode, I continue to speak to more evacuees around the world, including the first reported sighting of one of the Alpha Alien Predators. Mm -hmm.